I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Andy Norman. He is a philosopher, director of the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, founder of the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, and author of the book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, which we'll be talking about today. Andy, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank, thank you, Adam. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So what is mental immunity? Yeah, so I, I think the term had been used prior to my, uh, my use of it in the book um, to designate something a little bit different. Um, I wanted something to capture the idea that minds can be more or less susceptible to mis and disinformation, um, to good ideas or bad ideas, to um, uh, divisive ideologies and, and harmful assumptions. So I think the ideas we uh, are bombarded with the, and the information we're bombarded with all the day, uh, all day, every day, um, some of it is worth kind of storing in your mind and a whole lot of it isn't. Um, and the stuff that doesn't, that either I, that's misleading or that is harmful one way or another, you can actually think of that information as sort of parasitic. It can actually infect minds and spread from mind to mind and often harm uh, its hosts. So if you start looking at information in that way, you start to see all kinds of ways in which you can boost our immunity to, 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 to essentially bad information. We don't talk much about bad information, but, but it exists and it's worth, it's worth labeling. And it's worth figuring out how to uh, become more resilient in the face of it. Uh -huh. When we're talking about bad information, we're not necessarily even talking about things that we might disagree with, but have a, a large camp of following. We're talking about ideas that die out almost immediately. Well, sometimes bad ideas um, and bad information spreads despite its, its uh, harmful nature or its false nature. Or, um, so the, the other thing I hear in your question, which is, which is really nice, is that one way you could use the word bad when it comes to information or ideas is mean ideas I don't, dis, I don't agree with. Uh -huh. That makes subjective preference the arbiter of what's good and bad. And I, I think that's a mistake, that what we need to do is learn how to think about ideas as being good or bad in some more objective sense. Mm -hmm. So ideas actually have properties, like objective properties. They have logical properties. They have causal properties when we accept and believe them. And if we try to understand those properties in kind of a scientific spirit, you can actually gain a relatively objective sense of whether that idea is harmful or beneficial, true or false. And, and so we need to get past the idea that good just means whatever I approve of and bad means whatever I disapprove of, mm -hmm. right? So um, when you make that change, you, you can begin testing ideas in something like a scientific way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, off camera, we were talking about where cognitive immunology would fall into philosophy, what subdiscipline. And I'm sure you know that in philosophy of science, there's a large body of literature on both ends, people arguing for a value-free scientific ideal and for yeah. people saying science cannot be done without sort of these subjective biases playing a role, like even in deciding what questions to ask, let's say. So 
on one hand, if there's a rigorous scientific method that can allow you to approach objective answers, then you can validate or, um, or reject those, those results. But then on the other hand, it seems like you're stuck with a value system defining what questions you're even going to consider worthwhile pursuing. Yeah, I, I think there's there's no way to exist as a human being without uh, relying on certain values. Mm -hmm. and, and so any concept of objectivity that would require that degree of independence from values is, is a non-starter. It's, it's not a concept of objectivity worth having. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we need, get, need to get past the idea that if you bring any subjective inclination to a to into the situation, you're automatically tainted. That that that, that that's a oversimplified uh, concept of objectivity that makes it just an unattainable mm -hmm. ideal. It's not it's not even ideal. Uh, Nietzsche argued that if you were to achieve objectivity in that sense, you would effectively castrate the intellect, as he that's put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm after a concept of objectivity that is actually useful for distinguishing um, more and less reliable ways of perceiving and thinking and 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 being. Mm -hmm. So I guess I guess here we could talk about two definitions of useful ideas because there's useful in the sense that some things are true, like we can talk about scientific truths being useful. Also, we there are forms of information, if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, it might make sense. So let's say you're walking out in the forest and you see a bush rattle and out of the corner of your eye and you think there might be a snake there and you don't want to go and check. So you just start away from the bush. We don't know if the information is true or not, but it seems pragmatically useful to act as if it's true. And let's right. say there was actually no snake, but that that animal just survived by avoiding it. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. So information and ideas um, can be pragmatically useful or harmful, just to, and they can be true or false, and those don't always line up, right? So um, uh, one way I've heard the point you made put is it's better to mistake a, a boulder for a bear than a bear for a boulder. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. So and so if you if you uh, fail to notice that there is a carnivorous uh, predator approaching, um, that can end your life. But if you attribute um, predatory motives to a boulder inadvertently, you might waste uh, the energy required to sprint 100 yards. Mm -hmm. but you're not going to die. Right. <laughs> and, and evolutionary psychologists think that this is the explanation for why we tend to over attribute agency. Like we find agency in things that aren't really, uh, that don't really have minds mm -hmm. or, or intentions. Um, and, and so we, 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 people used to find gods in, in the rivers and the mountains and um, uh, people often if you hear a rustle in the bushes, a lot of times you'll assume it's a, it's a creature rather than the wind in the, mm -hmm. right? So our minds seem to be wired to, to see agency where, where it may not, more often than, it, than it's actually there. Mm -hmm. So where do these uh, false but pragmatically useful ideas fall into the scope of mental immunity? 
Yeah, so um, I think it, if in, so, so, so suppose th there are some things that are short-term beneficial, but long-term harmful mm -hmm. or, or uh, beneficial for me, but harmful for us, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that falsehoods should almost always be regarded as long-term harmful for us. So, it, so suppose I, I just indulge in an irresponsible and false belief that, I don't know, that the gods will, will rescue me, that, that the gods will, will, will smile upon me. Suppose I de de derive a degree of comfort from that and a degree of emotional well-being from that. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's a real benefit. And I think that real benefit counts, but I don't think it should, it should override the, the falseness or the irresponsibility of the belief. I think we have, a we have an obligation to fill our minds with stuff that is both true and useful. Right. And not just useful for me, but also useful for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I could imagine if you did the opposite. If you had some belief like the gods are out to get me, you could have two radically different responses to that, one of which might be, beneficial and one might not because you could be decide you're going to become more resilient um, or you could have like a victim mentality and then just get nothing done so I guess I guess if you're talking from a from a human level perspective even if some individuals might might benefit from that type of belief it wouldn't be good for our species yeah I think for the most part um, if you think that the gods are out to get you you're li liable to end up paranoid which has you know unpleasant social and emotional consequences mm -hmm. sure i can imagine situations where where a belief like that might actually benefit you yeah. for a time the paranoia and and perhaps other psychiatric disorders seem to fit very nicely into this theory because you could describe it as the mental immune system overreacting right yeah i so you, you've hit touched on something that i think is really interesting um just as the body's immune system can overreact to a perceived threat and attack your own body the mind's immune system can overreact to a perceived threat and attack your own mind. Mm -hmm. So, so let, let, let me spell that out because I think it's a really interesting point. So if, if you, you or any of your listeners suffer from hay fever or pollen allergy, um, it's the actual pollen isn't what makes you miserable. It's your immune system's overreaction to the pollen that makes you miserable. Mm -hmm. um, so that it, that's what... Uh, what uh, people in, in the field called uh, autoimmunity, like an, an immune overreaction. Mm -hmm. um, now th think about how you feel when somebody derides your political point of view. You're liable to feel defensive and angry right out of the gates, right? And a lot of times that your mind will immediately fill with reasons to dismiss the challenge to your worldview. Mm -hmm. When we feel defensive, when we feel angry, uh, when we feel scared, our, our mind's immune system tends to overreact and makes, makes it very hard for us to think clearly and judiciously. Right. So, so um, this is a good reason why, con why uh, political conversations, for example, need to be conducted in a civil uh, way that doesn't attack the, the person, the messenger, because if, when that happens, people's ability to think well together and resolve their differences degrades rapidly. 
Right. So there's this constant push-pull because it, it makes sense for us to have these mental heuristics that allow us to, to come to conclusions about our environment without much effort. But a lot of the time, the useful information comes only after you put in all of the effort and get to update your mental map of the world accordingly. Yeah, that's nicely put. I, so you use the term heuristics well here. Um, the Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman has said that our minds evolved lots of quick and easy shortcuts for, for figuring things out. And it's a way to save mental energy. And it turns out brain, brain function is costly in, in, an, uh, in terms of the amount of energy you have to expend to, to think well. So natural selection actually um, programmed into us to some degree the tendency to use mental shortcuts mm -hmm. to save energy. But, off, but sometimes those shortcuts get us into hot water, get us in trouble. And we have to learn how to, sometimes we have to say, hang on a second. I know that feels intuitively right, but, but I got to slow down and check my intuitions here. Let, 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 let's actually examine the evidence for and against and see if my intuitions are right. Um, Kahneman called that what system two thinking, where we deliberately uh, hit the pause button on our intuitions and do a more reflective analytical assessment of the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, se it seems useful to use a metaphor of like local and versus global minima, let's say in terms of the energy expended in coming to a certain conclusion, because it, okay. it's not that when we have an idea that's wrong that we get defensive of, we're just trying to be irrational. It's more like it's working to a certain extent, maybe we're at a local minimum of energy invested, or maybe we could call it a local maximum of, of benefit derived from this, uh, but- I like that way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that too, but then it doesn't necessarily make sense to go downhill when you're expending the energy to, up, to update your beliefs. So that's why I went for the, the minimum at first. So we can, we can use it both ways. But anyway, you're gonna have to, to get out of that slump you're in, you're gonna have to put in a whole bunch of effort to climb out of it into a, a new belief. But then once you fall into that new belief, potentially there's a bigger payoff waiting at the end. Yeah, that's actually a really nice, nice way to put it. Here's maybe one way to elaborate that idea a bit. Um, suppose there, imagine ourselves relatively simple creatures and that five things really matter to us. Mm -hmm. You know, um, food, uh, well, forget what they are. Let, let's just say that five things really matter to us, but cognitive limits only allow us to focus on two or three of them at a time. So you might well choose a solution to a certain problem or even pick out a heuristic, a way of handling uh, common um, problems that maximizes your output over, uh, as measured over those two or three variables that you're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. But if you don't also pay attention to the fact that there are other things that matter here, a lot of times the option you choose is suboptimal. It's, mm -hmm. it's less than ideal. So, uh, so yeah, um, I think that happens a lot. And one of the things we've discovered in the course of Western, well, in the course of human history um, is that collaborative inquiry or collaborative dialogue where people actually say, hey, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but doesn't this also matter? Mm -hmm. When you can do that and get somebody to say, oh yeah, I guess I see that there's another dimension here worth considering. When you can do that, we tend, 
we become less, um, we, we overcome tunnel vision and gain a, gain a more, a wider and some often wiser perspective. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with parasite stress theory? No, tell me more. This is a theory developed by an evolutionary psychologist, Randy Thornhill. I did a podcast with him a while back, and it's basically an evolutionary theory that has to do with our behavioral immune system, which seems, seems to overlap a lot with this idea of the, the mental immune system. So it's that disgust sensitivity is a great example of this. So we have this cognitive or emotional response of disgust when we see something that maybe like rotting food or anything that could potentially harm us. That's a much more direct example. Uh, but then there's also sort of disgust as this abstract emotion that, and it, it's been used as an explanation for in-group, out-group biases. So we, we tend to have a favorable view, favorable view of our in-group, but then depending how extreme this view is, you might have um, a disgust reaction to the out-group. And it, it was found that people with higher disgust sensitivity, just as a natural physiological trait, tend to hold more conservative beliefs. So from yeah. an evolutionary perspective, you have this constant push-pull where it's like, should we trust outsiders? And the liberal type mindset is something like, outsiders could be great, they could join our clan, they could bring us resources that we need. And then the conservative mindset, technically speaking, would be more like, what if this outsider carries disease or is a threat in some way? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I, I assume you know a bit about Jonathan Haidt's work in this area. Um, he, he has a thing called moral foundations theory where he argues yeah. that- so It's very strongly are, related to moral purity there. Yeah. Well, it turns out that conservatives place a higher, put more weight on purity and cleanliness and um, because they are often, because their disgust response is stronger. Mm -hmm. and then liberals is are liberals then liberals responses are um i wonder to what extent disgust is really a reliable indicator of what's moral or right so i have a different i have a difference of agreement difference of opinion here with jonathan Haidt, although i respect his work enormously and think I'm, i think think the world of much of it um i wonder to what extent it isn't a form of progress to over to, to set if you can learn to set aside your disgust reflex and think in a more um, judicious way about right and wrong mm -hmm. um, why isn't that a form of progress it, it seems to me that when our moral thinking is governed by uh, feelings like disgust and uh, uh, hatred and fear that we're actually less moral people mm -hmm. so yeah it seems like if you're fully ensconced in this theory, and you would say that you just made a great case for the liberal side of the view. Um, and I, get, I guess the reason I brought this up is because you mentioned uh, the importance of having this dialogue from opposing viewpoints to come at some truth that must be in the middle. But granted, I think that in our modern society, the, the conservative viewpoints, so to speak, it seems like it's, it was better described um, in evolutionary terms, because maybe there is actually some outgroup that could harm you or that could bring disease. Now, now we kind of live in a very globalized society. So um, it, it also makes sense to me um, that, that yeah. more liberal collectivist viewpoint. 
Yeah, well, and, and it's not hard to imagine scenarios today or even modern day scenarios where the discussed or the in-group out-group um, bias could, could be advantageous, mm -hmm. right? If, if the barbarians really are at the gates, then making a distinction between those inside the gates and those outside the gates can save your life and the lives of your fellows. Yeah, so this, this ties very nicely into tribalism, which, um, and then, well, tribalism, it seems like we're gonna do with almost anything, whether that's gonna be um, the country you're from or your race, or even something as simple as a sports team. Racism seems to be a pretty good example of uh, what we might call a bad idea. But it makes, <laughs> it makes sense that from this sort of in-group, out-group bias perspective, why the idea emerges. So this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier when talking about bad ideas that die out versus immediately versus bad ideas that seem to have either some level of truth to them or some sort of adaptive utility that we might think from. So like, it, even if it doesn't apply as much today, we know that we have this in-group, out-group bias, and that seems to explain why racism has stuck around for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, quite apart from their utility or their truthfulness, ideas also have more or less transmissibility. Mm -hmm. So what, I think it was Mark Twain who's, who sometimes is, uh, who once said the a falsehood can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that he was the first person to say that, but um, sometimes attributed to him. Um, I mean, just think about the fact that a, a false but salacious rumor can spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Right. Think about the fact that a sensationalistic headline can get more clicks than than an accurate headline. Right. And and one of the key takeaways here is that an idea doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to aid understanding. It doesn't have to be useful to take to take on a life of its own and actually harm the community of minds that host it. Mm -hmm. When we come to terms with that fact. This is why I use the concept of infectious ideas and mind parasites in the subtitle of my book. I think we have yet to fully come to grips with uh, the fact that our minds are actually infected mm -hmm. um, with what amount to mind parasites. Yeah. Um, if we were really to come to grips with that, I think we would learn to think quite differently. And I think our level, and we could achieve levels of critical thinking that are, are all too rare today. When an idea is infectious, is there some type of counterfactual truth to it? So the idea is like, if this were true, it would be very important. So we latch onto it very quickly. Well, an, an idea's importance or its potential to transform the world for the better are among its properties. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noticing and caring about those properties also. So, so let, let me think of an example here. Um, so, suppose, suppose that I think the idea that um, Donald Trump is unfit for office, um, the, quite apart from its true or falsehood, I think that it, it would be good a good thing for America if that idea spread, mm -hmm. right? 
um, I might help spread that idea simply because uh, I want it to proliferate. Right. Right. Um, I, I happen to think it's both true and worth proliferating in this particular one. Uh, but uh, but the 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 epidemiological properties of information of bundles of information are really interesting properties of them, and and uh, and information that doesn't serve us well can often proliferate anyway, despite our best interests. Mm -hmm. And and we need to come to grips with that at a much deeper level, I think. Right. So when when you have an idea, whether true or false, that you're trying to propagate, it seems like there are different strategies that you could use that probably relate to our cognitive immunity system. So for example, if your goal is to get Donald Trump out of office, you could make an argument that says something like, we should get him out of office because he's actually an alien in a human suit out to destroy our species. If true, that seems like a very valid argument, a good reason to get him out of office, but people are gonna dismiss that idea immediately. So it's like, it seems like the more true sounding the idea is, the more likely we are to take it seriously. So what is that true sounding? Yeah, I, I think there, there's, there've been some studies recently that suggest that when fake news has a, has a kernel of truth, like, like if it latches onto something that really did happen and then twist it into some new and, and misleading form, that often that spreads more than something just made up out of whole cloth. Uh -huh. So if you can take a scrap of truth and twist it in a way, the chances that the resulting meme will spread are, are tend to be greater. Mm -hmm. Right. So is that because whether, regardless of the idea, we already have these sort of cognitive immunity strategies built in and they're selecting for things that have more truth to them? Yeah, well, so, well, so I think it's, I think it's part of our evolutionary programming that we want to, we need to fill our minds with a lot of truths, mm -hmm. right? If you don't, if you don't know that the cliff is right over there, um, when it really is, not knowing the truth could be fatal. So there are all kinds of things about reality that you have to tune in to and know about to function well and, and survive and pass on your, your genes. Mm -hmm. So natural selection would favor, um, mental habits that create true beliefs to some to, to a significant degree but not but not completely because pleasing fictions and encouraging fictions and um, can often have more survival value than depressing truth mm -hmm. so you mentioned this idea of mean and richard dawkins is the one who coined this term right we're talking about means from an evolutionary perspective and not from an internet meme perspective. Yes. Although I guess those memes would, would count as memes in Dawkins' sense of the word as well. Cause it's, the idea is it's a packet of information that's transmitted over time. And then there are sort of natural selection method, um, things that happen to it. Yeah, I, I think uh, people in the biz often call it cultural selection. Um, uh -huh. It's a form of selection that that operates at a at the cultural level rather than the biological level. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in the same way that so what what drives natural selection is um, variation, 
selection and then uh, replication. So if you imagine creating a whole bunch of progeny with, with, with differences and the ones with the advantageous differences get selected for, and they're the ones who get to reproduce again, that's how natural selection works. But there's some, but that exact same dynamic takes place in the cultural sphere. Mm -hmm. And it and it means that our culture, cultural evolution is driven by forces that um, don't always align with our interests mm -hmm. and that we need to understand the, the, that dynamic so we can uh, try to steer cultural evolution in a direction that's best for, mm -hmm. for us all. Right. There also seems to at least sometimes be a direction that it heads on its own naturally. So and internet memes are actually a great example here because it's it's almost like there's some pl platonic ideal of the best, most transmissible, funniest meme. Because you could imagine taking something that you think is moderately funny and making some, you know, making thousands of adjustments to it and sending yeah. those off into the wind. And most of them are going to die out. Maybe they may just make it worse if yeah. if the evolutionary adaptiveness in this case is like how funny it is, how much people want to share it. But well, how funny those your adaptations are going to improve it. Yeah. Um, so this is before your time, but back in the day, there were something called chain letters, mm -hmm. which like a letter would arrive in snail mail that basically says, uh, if you create six copies of this letter and send them out to your friends, you know, replacing your name with theirs, um, good luck will come to you and God will, God will smile upon you and, and, this happened, Joe passed on the letter and he made a million, he won the lottery. And uh, poor Diane, she didn't send the letters and she got cancer. So make sure you send on the letter. And it I turns out- things like that over email, over Facebook. I had no idea that it started out with snail mail. And that seems like way more effort too. Way more effort. And, and what, what, but, but some people have actually studied this and it turns out that the letters that, that did the best job of of getting people to to copy them and and send copies of them um, had certain properties um, and some of them died out but the ones with the properties that aided their replication survived in greater numbers um, and so uh, some of the the most highly evolved chain letters actually had features that allowed them to manipulate minds more effectively what do you mean by manipulate minds? Well, so spending money on six postage stamps and taking the time to go to the copy store. Back then, we didn't have copies in our houses, um, copiers in our houses. Uh, all of that represents an expenditure of time and, and resources that to, to no discernible good. Mm -hmm. um, so technically, it's a waste. It's a kind of like a pyramid scheme where nothing um, I mean, no, no, no good, no good came from the spreading of those uh, chain letters that I can tell, and yet they managed to induce the minds that receive many of the minds that received them into expending that energy. Uh -huh. Right, yeah. and then once you expend the energy, your mind is going to rationalize it, thinking this must be for a good cause. It reminds me of that uh, Thomas Jefferson was famous for saying, if you want someone to like you, ask them to do you a favor. Your intuition would tell you, you should do them a favor, so they owe you one. But it's more like if they do you a favor and agree, 
they're going to rationalize it and saying, oh, I just did this. I must like this person. Interesting. I, I would imagine there's a the sunk cost. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It has to be a small enough favor for them to agree, obviously. But then that, the idea is the ball gets rolling with that. Um, that's a fascinating thought. I, I, I hadn't heard that spelled out as, as simply as that, but it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so it, it's not necessarily going to be the better ideas are being selected for. Like, especially on social media, we see that moral outrage seems to be one of the biggest predictors of maybe how successful something will be at getting shared. Yes. Yeah. So, so compare the idea selection criteria employed by the community of QAnon believers, right? If it inflames my sense of outrage, then click share, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, versus the, the, the standards that prevail in, in the best science, scientific communities, right? Where peer review is expected, where uh, results need to be replicable, mm -hmm. um, where evidence is treated as something subjective and, sorry, as objective, not, not merely in the eye of the beholder. These are all norms that have grown up within the scientific community. And if more of us tried to select our mental contents like scientists do, and fewer of us tried to uh, select mental contents the way QAnon followers do, we could create a much, much better world. Uh -huh. So it sounds like we're describing the order at which we, we let our emotions versus uh, our mind, our rationality come into play, because it seems like the natural order, and this is consistent even with the way our brain evolved, like the limbic structures came first, we have the reptile and then mammalian brain that kind of have these more um, primitive emotional responses to things. And then only later, the prefrontal cortex come and we start developing our rationality. So it seems like we see something, whether good or bad, and then have the good or bad emotional response to it based on that sort of counterfactual, if this was true. And then only afterwards do we deconstruct it cognitively and, and either think it's true and then the emotional response persists or we prove it to be false. And then if it's something that would be morally outrageous that turns out to be false, the negative emotion goes away. Or if it's like, you know, you get a, a an email spam that says you just won the lottery and maybe your heart skips a beat for a second if you believe it's true and then you figure out it's not true and then but then that email example is actually pretty good for the alternative approach because it seems like we've been exposed to enough of those email type spams that we discount them immediately so the emotional response in that case would only come first it would be like it would be like um the rational response would sort of gatekeep right. our emotional response and so is that yeah. is that the ideal that you're suggesting we we strive for something like that yeah um so i'm going all the way back to the beginnings of western philosophy you know, plato pointed out that our emotions often get us into trouble and mm -hmm. and uh so our emotional response to things is immediate and strong yeah. and our rational response to things is ten, tends to be slower and weaker mm -hmm. nevertheless plato said you know um reason needs to hold the reins of emotion. His metaphor was like a chariot. The reason has to be the charioteer and the emotions are like the, the horses. Uh -huh. um, 
And unless the reason keeps the emotions in check, we tend to harm ourselves and others. That was Plato's argument. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, I, I like that metaphor. I think it's largely true. I think there, there are a lot of misconceptions about the role of emotion, though. It's not as though emotion is bad, it's always bad, right? We have warm, sympathetic feelings towards others that often steer us right, just as we sometimes have hateful responses or fearful responses in ways that steer us wrong. Um, so so, so to my way of thinking, uh, it's not that emotion is the enemy that needs to mm -hmm. be purged so that we all become emotion like Spock-like critters. It's rather that emotion needs to be guided um, by, by, by reason and our best, our best selves, by our forebrain. Yeah. Plato's metaphor of the chariot is actually very apt because you could turn the chariot and steer in any direction, but if the horses, the emotions don't go anywhere, then you're not going anywhere. And there's some, some famous neuroscience research by Antonio Damasio, who's at USC. And he's found that people with lesions in certain areas of the brain that, um, that allow them not to, that don't allow them to experience normal emotions, mm -hmm. their rationality is perfectly intact. But he, he recounts that they, they're just extremely indecisive. So the idea is they can weigh all the pros and cons of something, but the conclusion is that you actually need, once all the pros and cons are laid out, sort of this emotional pull to, to get you to make a decision. Yeah, I think, I think again, I think that's true to a, to a first approximation, at least. Um, David Hume made a similar point. He basically said, reason doesn't motivate anybody to do anything. The emotions are what, are what get, us to, get us off the couch and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I suspect that Hume overstated his point there. Um, it seems to me that I allow reasons to change the way I feel about things all the time. So just take a very simple example. You and I want to get together, uh, are, are driving in a car together. We want to reach a certain destination. There's two ways to get there. There's the 30th Street Bridge and the 40th Street Bridge. Mm -hmm. You head toward, you're at the wheel, you head to the 30th Street Bridge and I say, uh, hey, Adam, um, not a good idea. There's there's a traffic jam on the 30th Street Bridge. And you go, oh, okay. And you steer across the 40th Street Bridge and we get there on time. Mm -hmm. What I've essentially given you is a reason to change your direction. Yeah. And, and it changes what you want to do. So reasons often shape our emotions, not just the other way around. Um, and... And, and that kind of perfectly ordinary, everyday, non-exceptional use of reasons, we, we often overlook that when we focus purely on our failures to reason each other out of our political ideologies or reason each other out of our religious ideologies. Yeah, it's hard to dislodge religious and political ideologies, but we use reasons all of the time to change each other's minds. And it works. It works so often. And so many people working in this field today overlook these ordinary everyday uses of reasons that really do help to modify our thinking in good and useful ways. Do you think we're truly changing our desires or do you think it's something like latently we have this conception of what the best outcome might be 
end. Once new facts are presented that show to be like more in alignment with that vision, but the idea is that we have the vision first and then the facts align to it as opposed to something like we assemble the facts and then we create the vision out of the facts. There's a couple of things going on in that question. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to, to answer it um, adequately, but just, just to go back to, to, to cash it out in terms of the example we gave before. So your desire to get to our shared destination doesn't change, even though you've right. veered in the direction of the 40th Street Bridge. Right. But your desire to go across the 30th Street Bridge has changed. Right. And I would add that you would have to have the desire to get there in the fastest amount of time. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. Sure. Let, let's just, uh, let's, let, yeah, that, that seems like the right assumption to make in this case. Um, let's see, there was more packed into your question. Bring me back to it. Mm -hmm. So it, it has to do with whether you're on the spot. So compare it. So the 30th street bridge would take longer and the 40th street bridge is faster. We could assume that we're driving sort of as this blank slate and you're just going down 30th street because it's what you know. And then as soon as you tell me 40th street would be faster on the spot, I evaluate the pros and cons of getting there faster and switching my destination and then mm -hmm. truly change what I want. Right. The other, the other idea would be something like, I already know that I want to get there as fast as possible. I'm just lacking information. So I'm already implicitly receptive to any information that would allow me to achieve that goal that I already have. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me both of those descriptions can be true. I'm not sure that they, we have to choose between them. Um, it, I mean, you, 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 we can paint ourselves as simply fixated on our desires and only changing our ideas about the best means to get there. We, we can, we, if we wanted to, we could interpret almost everything that way. Mm -hmm. But we can also actually, and I think rightfully interpret many of these situations as ones where, you know, where our actual ends change, not just our means, not just the means, but also the ends change. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of, of that. Um, I mean, there are people who've, who've spent years working for the Republican party who become disillusioned with the current, you know, recent developments in, in the Republican Party, and have simply decided, I no longer want to work to elect Republicans. Mm -hmm. That, in, in in a way that you, you can interpret that two ways. The actual end has changed. I used to work in order to, for the sake of electing Republicans. Now I don't. You can interpret that as a change in end. Mm -hmm. But you could also interpret it if you want, I suppose, as well, I used to think that the, the best means for serving the end of our country is to elect Republicans. And now, no, now I no longer think that's the, the best means to that end. Yeah, yeah, this, re this relates to a very big question in moral philosophy. We don't have to go completely into it, but um, it's the idea of whether you can consciously do evil or not. Because one approach is something like, yes, good and evil are these things that exist and we know what they are and you could target evil. Another is something like every individual by definition can only enact what they think is best, but 
it's possible for your conception of good to become so warped that you're doing something that's evil. And, and Plato is the first person I'm aware of who articulated the, the, the latter view. In fact, he, he was quite uh, adamant about this. Everybody wants what's best. It's just that some of us mistake bad things for good things and pursue those because out of ignorance. And I mean, one of the nice features of that view is that it means that the correct way to deal with what looks like evil is to educate people, to instruct them. Mm-hmm. And since instructing and educating people is a more humane way of dealing with somebody who might be perceived as evil, it's a beneficial way of looking at things, whether or not it's true. And Aristotle came, came along afterwards and basically said, you know, Plato's overlooking the fact that, um, no, people don't always want what's best. There, there are actual cases of people wanting bad and destructive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah. So the the former view, Plato's view, definitely seems more optimistic, and especially in the case of developing mental immunity, because then it would. So this this kind of uh, ties into the the whole nature nurture question: uh, whether these are learned strategies, and all we need to do is educate people to be more rational, or whether certain people are going to be born with innate differences that bias them towards certain views. Obviously, the answer is going to be both, but it's more like, to what extent can we actually educate this type, educate different thinking styles? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And and I think it's an empirical question, right? We have to to, to try and see. I'm having a really interesting uh, discussion right now with um, some, some friends who I admire enormously and who are pretty pessimistic, are about our ability to educate people out of their taste for delusion, say, or educate people out of their taste for conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at history and I see times in which the human need to indulge in conspiracy thinking abated to a significant degree. Or or, um, think about the transition from the late middle ages to the enlightenment. there were burning witches and heretics in the late middle ages. And then a spirit of reason and inquiry swept through Europe and the number of people who were burned for witchcraft and heresy dropped by one or two orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. So it really matters when people start taking reason seriously. I think when people become even marginally more responsive to reason, I think humanity can make great strides. Mm-hmm. And how, how do we, oh, so I, I actually listened on your Joe Rogan podcast, you told a joke about um, the flat earther encountering God. Yes. Do you wanna go through that joke? Yeah, sure, that one seems to be a crowd favorite. Uh, so, so, so Fred the flat earther dies and goes to heaven. Uh, he strides into God's inner sanctum and says, hey, God, I've devoted my entire life to promoting flat earth theory. Now that it's over, I have to ask, is it flat or is it round? And God looks at him and says, I'm sorry to say, Fred, but the world is very stubbornly round. And Fred looks at him and he says, this conspiracy goes higher than I thought. <laughs> yeah, so, so that really nicely sums up the two radically different responses you can have to reason i guess because in this case god is supposed to be omniscient so what he says is going to be the ultimate truth 
but you could still choose to reject that. So what, what happens when, despite our best efforts, people reject what, what we know is true? You know, I think this is such a profound point, um, and I, I love the way you put it. Um, we are always free to simply ignore the better reason. Um, and when we do, in other words, reason's power to change our minds, it, we, you can always turn it off. And I think it's actually, some people feel a need to turn off reason's power to change their minds. So when Ken Ham, the evangelical Christian said that I will always believe in the Bible, um, nothing is gonna change my mind. He's basically saying, I'm not even gonna allow reasons to change my minds about this. He's simply declaring that his fealty to you know, biblical inerrancy is untouchable. Um, it seems, that seems to me an, an extremely unfortunate kind of dogmatism and closed-mindedness that has a long history of harming human prospects. Mm -hmm. um, and when we come to appreciate the importance of being responsive to reasons, to better reasons, our li lives tend to improve. Mm -hmm. The psychologist Carol Dweck has argued that there are two fundamentally different kind of mindsets. One is the fixed mindset, which says I'm going to cling to my beliefs and you know, turn with disdain on anything that would challenge them. And, there, and then she has what she calls the growth mindset, which is always looking to develop and refine itself and, and grow. And it turns out people who master the growth mindset are happier, more successful, more prosperous. Um, they, their children are better behaved. I mean, it, it's just, this is one of the, like, the master keys for living well, learning how to let go of the fixed mindset and embrace instead the growth mindset is a true difference maker for people's lives. And I think it could be historically huge too. My, my work on mental immunity is really about trying to take that concept of growth mindset and operationalize it to make it, um, it to articulate exactly what it means to have the growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, my book is a, is a you know, book length treatment of what the growth mindset is. Yeah, what an optimistic place to end on. So thank you so much for your time, Andy. Thank you, Adam. I, I wish you well with your studies and, uh, and uh, I like what you're doing. I, I hope the podcast is wildly successful. Thank you, I appreciate it. And listeners, be sure to check out Andy's book, Mental Immunity. Thank you. <laughs>